From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Christopher Paul Meyer writes regularly at The Havoc Journal and Savage Wonder. He is a former bouncer, firefighter, soldier, comic, and prison chaplain. He started his writing career as a screenwriter, writing five screenplays, three of which were either optioned or commissioned. His first book was Icarus Falling, a memoir of his years as a nightclub bouncer. He has since edited his late father's short stories for the collection I Was the Champion Then. Chris was in New York City and near the World Trade Center on 9-11, an experience that ultimately led him to join the Army and to serve in Afghanistan with an Army Special Forces unit. Chris is now the director of VetRep, the Veterans Repertory Theater, and the host of both the Savage Wonder Podcast and Profiles in Havoc. From New York City on 9-11 to Prison Chaplain, from Club Bouncer to the Global War on Terror, these are Chris Meyer's Battlefields. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Charlie. Glad to be here. Hey, I'm really excited to get into this. You and I have known each other for a long time, but you've got a really compelling story to tell. So let's just get right on in it. Yeah. um, I don't know why I got interested in the military, but for whatever reason, um, I loved the very romantic ideal of war at a very early age. I, I guess I loved history. I was reading a lot of books about history, and I'm talking about like second grade, third grade. Like I, I, so that was my big preoccupation. I think probably another reason is because I was growing up in New York city in the eighties. Um, you know, the streets were pretty violent and I lived in a good part of town and it was still violent. I was mugged in front of my own house Mm. on my own doorstep. So I think the idea of physical force being necessary to protect the innocent was always a fascination of mine. Um, When I was a little bit older, when I was a teenager, we had a uh, major protest put together by um, National Action Network, or Al Sharpton's group. They were protesting our building uh, because my dad, who was the manager of our apartment building, um, had the audacity to hire six Croatians to do construction work. Mm. And they ended up putting the six Croatians in the hospital and then, and this mob did, and then one of them ran up the staircase, the fire escape and, um, pointed a gun at my mom and she was in the next room and I heard her yell and I grabbed my baseball bat and I remember running into her room and the kid, he was a kid, he was a teenager like me. He ran and ran down the fire escape and they passed the gun through the crowd and it disappeared. And moments like that were burned into my brain. I mean, those were very visceral images. I remember just to give you a kind of a laundry list of little flashpoints, data points that kind of greatly impacted me. I remember uh, much earlier, five years old, um, coming home with my mom and we were in our apartment building and she was um, literally letting us into our apartment and two guys stumbled uh, around the hallway fighting each other and one guy had a chain and he just literally was beating the other guy to a pulp which was disturbing enough but afterwards we found out that the guy getting beaten was an undercover cop 
and the cab driver, and they're both cab drivers, or, or oh, the cop was going undercover as a cab driver. So I don't know what it was. I don't know what he had been breaking up, but he got caught at it, and the other guy was a better fighter than him, and it was not working out well. Um, I remember seeing a homeless guy have a cop on his knees begging for his life at gunpoint, um, and I was watching outside my window as it happened right across the street. Again, just little data points of what it was like growing up in a safe area of New York City in the 1980s. So that's kind of the environment I grew up in. So that coupled with my love of history, um, I, I inherently was fascinated and invested in the idea of what righteous, positive force could do to protect people. And protecting people was a big priority for me. So why did you choose the Army? Are there any number of other services you could have gone into? Why that? Yeah, so um, thank you for skipping over major psychological reasons <laughs> of why I joined when. But the, the short answer is, uh, I, I, the short and glib answer is, it was, um, I was too old for the Marines because I joined late. I was 31 or 32 when I joined. And, um, but it was going to get me in the fight. And I had visions of being in Iraq with Petraeus, uh, at that point. And that's when I was like, okay, well, army, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, long answer, short question. That's why I went to the army when I did. So there is a big gap between the time that you described in New York City and the time that you actually enlisted in the Army. So what were you doing in, in those years? Yeah. So graduating from college in the 90s, obviously, I was no, I was no Charlie Faint. I wasn't just gunning for the military no matter what. <laughs> I deeply, deeply, deeply flirted with the military. Um, I was a senior. I was entering my senior year of high school when Black Hawk Down happened. Mm -hmm. And that was enough to get me into the Marine recruiter. And I was a Marine poolie for about five, six months. And my mom basically said, I will disown you if you join the Marines. And I didn't need to be talked into it too much or out of it, I should say too much, because at that point we pulled out of Somalia. And I was like, oh, what a tease. All right. So is this how the military is going to be? <laughs> right. And remember at that point, I mean, as you well know, at that point, we hadn't been in a war since Vietnam. No. So it was one of those things where it was like, well, why am I going to join for four years to have the, to cross my fingers and hope I'm going to get in a fight for three weeks before our presence pull us out or before we decide that it's just not worth the effort right. and the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So for me after that, I, I love the idea of the military. Um, and I, it came up again my freshman year in college. I again saw the Marine recruiter. Now I was in Virginia. And I um, went to him and I was like, hey, yeah, I think I, think I should do the Marines. He's like, let me do Marine Reserves because I'm in college. My mom will kill me if I leave college. But let me do Marine Reserves. And he's like, awesome. He's like, um, well, the only job we have is supply. And I was like, yeah, dude, if I'm, if I'm going to give up my weekends and get a dorky looking haircut, I, I, it needs to be for more than supply. And he was like, yeah, but you're still going to be a Marine. And I was like... I, I can appreciate that, but I'm, I'm not that sold on just the identity of a Marine that I'm going to ignore what the MOS is you're giving me. And I and um, and then I again went into Army ROTC in college, did that for the first two years. That disillusioned me because again it was the '90s. Um, we had our Ranger unit at ROTC, mm -hmm. and they made a big point about Ranger Qual weekend for ROTC. And I remember everybody in ROTC was going through it. And we all wanted to earn the black beret. It was a black beret back then, right? And uh, 
and I knocked myself out to be able to do the five-mile run. We were in the field all weekend. I absolutely killed myself. I was on the football team in college. We were a D1 school. Um, I was not a good player, but I was physical, and I played rugby in my spare time. I was the president of the judo club. I was like, I'm here for the fight. Right. And um, I killed myself to get to qualify as a ROTC ranger. And they ended up giving the beret to every single person that came out. Wow. And it was like 42 people, including, I remember specifically some women that had actively quit in the middle and they all were given berets and it was the army of the nineties. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, I actually brawl in rugby on the weekends and I actually smash people's faces in football on the weekends. That's real. That's the realest war I know of right now. This is, this is made up stuff. Y'all are nerds. So I, I quit that. And, um, and then I, again, was like, again, someone kept pulling me towards military. So I went to talk to the National Guard. And I said, uh, and um, our, my judo coach was a special active duty. Well, take it back. Res- guard? No, he was reserve. He was reserve E7, Sergeant First Class Billy Ray McGregor. He had been with 10th Group. He was a Green Beret. But he was riding out his 20 years at this reserve unit in Virginia. And he was like, oh, well, he's like, you want to do something badass? And I was like, yeah, I do. And he's like, okay. He's like, well, you should go be part of 11th group, which at the time was the reserve special forces group. And I still remember, I don't think this is violating OPSEC to say, I still remember he said, like, call up Sergeant First Class Voss at Fort AP Hill. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And I was so nervous making that call. I was like, oh, this is the real deal. This is like, you know, actual stuff. And I called him up and, the, and he said, great. He's like, are you in the army now? I was like, no. He's like, Right. He's like, go be an infantryman for a little bit, learn the trade. And then in a couple of years, give me a call and we'll think about bringing you over if you want. So I went and talked to the National Guard. I was ready to sign an 11 Bravo contract as an infantryman. And a very fateful thing happened that is very 1990s. I went and had a, uh, I said, I was the president of the judo club. And our fraternity was part of a, a big wrestling match. And I got paired against one of our rival, a guy from one of our rival fraternities that we really hated. But I'd never wrestled. I'd only done judo, <laughs> which was done you know, with clothes, with a gi. Right. And um, I went in there and the other kid had wrestled and he whooped me. <laughs> and I was furious. I was like, oh man, if he'd been wearing any piece of clothes, I could have choked him, <laughs> could have done this. I was, I was so loath that I called up the National Guard and I said, forget it. Not doing that because again, I didn't think war was imminent. I didn't think right. anything was going to happen. And instead, I went with a buddy of mine to the Olympic Training Center for Judo all summer. And I was like, I'm just, and at the time UFC was first starting. Right. And I was super influenced by Ken Shamrock. And I was like, I'm going to go be a member of the Lion's Den. I'm going to do MMA. Like I thought that was what I needed to do instead. Because again, I was like, where does a young man go in the mid nineties for a war? Right. And, and I was, and for me, I was constantly tempted by the military, but there was nothing scratching that itch that the military could offer yet. Um, and that I was too naive to see. So ended up doing that. And that was it. My fascination was martial arts up until, uh, you know, I got out of college and, you know, I played football through the end of college. And then, um, and then by the time 9-11 rolled around, where I really should have been, okay, here we go. Now's my time. Um, I was, I had really made some big life choices and I was working as a prison chaplain in New York City. And I just didn't see... I was like, again, I don't know how long this thing's going to last, 
But on top of it, I was very acutely aware that we were fighting an ideology in the global war on terror. And I was like, you know, an ideology can be battled anywhere. And especially with the fifth column elements I saw in prison mm-hmm. in the Muslim population. And I can talk about Prislam and all that stuff. But I was like, I think I'm needed here. And sure enough, the imam that I worked for was suspended for inciting against America. An imam I worked with was arrested for smuggling contraband to Muslim prisoners. Um, just to be fair, the Catholic deacon that I served with at a different facility was arrested and thrown out for having sex with all the male prisoners. <laughs> so to be fair, there, were, there was a lot of bad juju going around in general. But um, but I felt like I was that was where I was needed and I was doing good work there. And I'd kind of made that choice in the late 90s when I got out of college to that as far as my macho side, I was going to act. I was going to get into the theater and, and in the creative space, but I was going to scratch that macho itch by just doing difficult things benevolently. Hmm. And that was kind of where my head was at. And it wasn't until several years into the GWAT that I had become disillusioned. And I really felt like I was probably sabotaging my own career because I wanted to go get in the fight. And I was like, this is my war. I feel ashamed for not being a part of it. And I know I'm long in the tooth for it now. I'm not the robust 19-year-old I was or 18-year-old I was, but I, I will not be able to live with myself if I can't tell my kid what I did and that I did something violent and righteous in cause of this war. Well, Chris, you kind of dropped that whole prison chaplain thing on us. We were going through your partying in college, you're in a fraternity, you want to join, you're playing football, and all of a sudden you're a prison chaplain. So yeah. how did you get on that? Um I was raised in a pretty religious household. Um, we weren't evangelical in the sense, I don't mean that just Protestant evangelicals, but I mean, I mean in the sense we weren't um, proselytizers. Mm-hmm. We didn't walk around with wearing it on our shoulders or anything, but we, we were driven by values and by faith. And so I always felt um, that that was the right answer. I also felt that I was a red-blooded American youth, and that was hard for me to wrap my head around when the testosterone's pumping at an early yes. age. But, but I was like, but I was like, look, I know that's probably mineral soil ground truth that I should get to. And when I got out of college, I was like, I got to get, um, you know, I knew I was going to go into showbiz because that was also the family business. And I was like, but I need to get grounded. I need to know who I am. Like many young men, I did. I was searching for that sense of identity and looking for something to test myself in. And I was like, what if I just really pivoted hard to being the best person I could possibly be? And that for me meant, okay, where can I practice my faith in the most trying circumstances? Um, And for me, I was like, oh, there was an opportunity to run the program in prison and build the schedule and then be there, you know, got 40, 60 hours a week on Rikers Island and the tombs and downtown Manhattan and Queensboro Correctional Facility and a bunch of these places. And I was like, awesome. If I'm going to do something frivolous like showbiz as a career, this is going to keep me grounded. This is going to scratch the itch. And I can sleep I can sleep at night knowing I've done some good in the world besides just trying to make money and further my career. Okay. Did not work out that way. But that's, <laughs> that was the plan. That was the plan. <laughs> All right, so you've done all this, you had all these great experiences, and now you're finally in the Army. So what are you doing in the Army? What's your MOS? So, yeah, that was, again, a real pain point. Um, because when I joined the Army, I was actually living in my truck in L.A. Wow. Um, I'd been bouncing in nightclubs 
and I was broke and I joined, but I joined because I was like, I, I feel in retrospect, I feel like I sabotaged myself because I wanted my mom. So let me preface this. It was really my mom. My mom was terrified of me joining the military. She was, she knew it was something I'd always flirted with mm-hmm. and she and my dad were older and she just flat out told me, she's like, if you get into the military, I don't think I'm going to last. Wow. And I was like, okay. And that was kind of what was always over my head. Sure. I, this, I, I hate to say this because it sounds like I'm like blaming her for stuff in my life. And I, I don't mean to do that. It was a very understandable uh, position that she had. Um, but for me, it was an inhibitor um, to what to what kind of was boiling inside me. So at a certain point, I kind of feel in retrospect, I probably sabotaged a lot of my life <laughs> until I was like, hey, mom. Got I'm to. broke. I'm yeah. in the car. I got to join. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to do. And I went in and at the time they were offering 40,000 in signing bonuses wow. to do combat arms. So I came in and I was like, awesome. Airborne infantry or calf scout, either one I'm down for. Yeah. And I was there at MEPS and I was talking to the counselor there. And, um, and he was like, yep, you just tell me either one. What do you want to do? Airborne infantry or calf scout. And that one phone that they have at MEPS you know, there's a line of guys calling out there. And I was like, hold on. I was like, let me just, I, I got to make a call. So I called my mom and I was like, look, I got to know you're not going to die if I do this. And I mean, I'll never forget her answer. She did. There was a pause. Okay. And I was like, oh man, I was like, I'm not going to be able to live with myself. If, if like I could tell in her voice, yeah. it wasn't going to yeah. be good. And I was like, okay. I was like, look, let me go back to him. Let me find out what else is there. And I went back and he was like, look, with your ASVAB scores, like you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, the, except anything that had clearance because uh, my credit was so bad. I was broke. <laughs> I was living in my car. And they, they, at first, they, he was like, do you want to do MP? And I was like, I think I could probably get away with MP. And that would put me in the fight. But I could fake that with mom enough. Yeah. And, uh, and I went and literally as I was filling out the form, uh, to get my secret clearance as an MP, the, whoever it was, the guy walked over and was like, just stop filling it out. He's like, no, you, clearly you're not going to qualify for a clearance. So I was like, all right, so tear that up. So it had to be a job that didn't have a security clearance. Okay. And so I was like, okay. Uh, I was like, he came up and he was like, I can't believe we still have this cause it's August and usually these jobs are gone by now, but we do have firefighter if you want to do that. And I was like. Yes. Okay. I'll do that. And, um, it amazingly in 2007, that came with a $12,000 signing bonus. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And so that was it. So I went in as a firefighter and I'll never forget, um, going back to the recruiter's office in Burbank, California, where I'd enlisted and I'd been talking to the recruiters and remember one recruiter was back. He'd already done four deployments to Iraq. Wow. He was with the 82nd. And he had been, they'd forced this recruiting assignment on him. And every time I talked to him, he was just like talking about how much he missed his guys, how he wanted to get back there, how they were in the fight right now and all this. And I talked to him about it because I was super interested in the war and cared about what was going on. And I talked about like, hey, you know, this is what I think should happen. And this is what I, you know, we talked politics, we talked war and all this stuff. And I remember coming back and going and going, all right, I got, I, I'm going to be a firefighter. And he looked at me. I mean, I might as well have said I was going to the post office. He was just like, wow. oh, so you're not really trying to be a soldier. And I was just like, yeah, 
that's, and he's like, you're going to be doing barbecues on, on weekends. And I was like, wow. well, I'm going to do everything to make sure that's not what it is, but I hear you. And it was one of those things I was like, I don't know. I, I mean, I, it, it's to this day, honestly, it's still a point of shame for me because I had every reason to go combat arms. It was my right. war. I was there at 9-11. I was at the Trade Center when it happened. I was like, this was my war. And I was somebody that had loved the idea of war my whole life. And it, um, it, it definitely, yeah. But I was like, you know, sure enough, within two years after enlisting, my dad was in really, really, really bad shape. He was physically incapacitated. My mom was a full-time caregiver. And within two more years, they were both dead. So, Yikes. you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, I, who knows how that cookie could have crumbled, whatever I decided. Uh-huh. Um, and if that would have all happened earlier and I couldn't, I mean, the nice thing to the extent it's nice is that I was able to be there on my mom's last night and fly back from LA to be with her, ended up spending the next 10 months with my dad taking care of him until he died. I, I couldn't have done that if I'd been on active duty mm-hmm. and if I'd stressed them out to the point that all that had happened five, six years earlier. Yes. So who knows? You know, I can't, it's, I keep telling myself, I can't second guess myself, but it is something where I'm like, uh, I, I, I could have done more. I, you know, a little bit of Schindler's List stuff. I could have done more. <laughs> there should have been more I could have done. Um, but that was, you know, uh, that was my initial uh, entry into the army. And uh, yeah. Long answer, short question. But there so, you go. did you know before that day that firefighter was an MOS in the army? Did you know that they had firefighters? I did. I did. I, I did. I, I really, because I really, I mean, I say I loved the idea of the military, mostly because I didn't know anybody in the military. So I'd research the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. Like I loved. I would like literally. It was like porn for me to surf through like GoArmy.com yeah. and go look at all these jobs, all these different things. Oh, I bet this could do this and this could do that. And like. And, um, so, and, and I did that with all the services. So I was acutely aware of what every service offered and all that. But, um, yeah, so I did know of it. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's the way that all unspooled. Well, so. before we go forward, because I know that that's not the end of your military experience, military career, mm-hmm. let's back up a little bit. Cause you said something that was very interesting. So you were in New York when the nine 11 tax happened. Is that correct? Yeah. So what, what was that like for you? <laughs> yeah, that was, um, so I was supposed to have jury duty. Well, I had jury duty on 71 Thomas Street, which was caddy corner to the World Trade Center itself. And um, <laughs> I laugh because I have a very perverse experience of 9-11 because the start of it was very funny for me in retrospect. And the rest of it is horrific and changed my life. And I think about it every day. But it started with I, I had a I was going into showbiz, doing stand-up comedy, theater, whatever. I had my day job working in the prisons. I also had a night job at Graveyard. I would go pull Graveyard shifts as a proofreader for law firms. Oh, wow. So the night before 9-11, I had a proofreading gig, and I was supposed to go work for a law firm named Brown & Wood, which was in one of the trade centers. I can't remember which one. And then at the last minute, they pulled me and said, no, you're going to go work for this other law firm tonight. And I was like, well, that's okay. It kind of stinks because I have jury duty in the morning down there, but okay. So I worked all night at the FAO Schwartz building in this law firm, went down there the next morning and uh, 9-11 happened. But I have to, I got to preface exactly how that all unspooled because 
jury duty, we had just started it the day before because it was Monday, right? The start of the week. I'd been selected for a jury. It was the most annoying process because I'd first been, you know, tried to go into a, a, a jury, been selected for a jury that was like a murder. I'd had another one that was like some super interesting thing. I don't remember. And they kept voidering me out. I couldn't make it on the, either of those juries. The one I got selected as an alternate for was for a guy that sprained his ankle on a public housing project step. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to sit through this. This is going to be absolute hell. And, and I, on top of it, I was, a, I was an alternate. So I didn't, wouldn't even get a say in it unless a juror, another juror dropped out. But that first day, in, on the Monday, the judge was this old guy. He talked for two hours just to instruct the jury how to behave. Wow. And the things that he put down, he just was just running his mouth with one story after another, kind of like me right now. And he would just, <laughs> and he would just talk and talk and talk. But his biggest point is he was like, if you are late for court, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're an alternate juror. I will fine you at least $500. Oh. And you better show up here like on time. You better be awake. I need quiet. I need this. So he had a complete, wow. you know, this very authoritarian sense of how his courtroom needed to run. So on 9-11, I can't. And, oh, and, and the other thing he said is he said, if you see any misconduct, you need to report it to me immediately. So he introduced all the parties involved. These are the lawyers. This is the plaintiff. These are the defense. If you see any of them talking to each other outside of the courthouse, obviously not the lawyers and their clients, but anybody else, he's like, you need to let me know. He's oh. like, they cannot be, they cannot be, I don't want to see people talking, trying to leverage something, negotiating, anything like that. So you need to say something if you see any of that. Okay, so those are the two things that I'm that have now been burned into my brain. Okay, so 9/11, I come down, I take the the West Side subway down. We the subway stop was Chamber Street, right under the World Trade Center. I get off the platform, and the platform is packed. Now it's rush hour on a Tuesday, but this is extra packed. I've never seen Wall Street packed like this. And I was like, okay, that's weird. And as I'm walking up the steps, I'll never forget, there's this kid about my age walking past me. And he looks me right in the eye for no good reason. And he says, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I remember thinking, what kind of idiot pilot doesn't see right. the World Trade Center, right. right? So I'm like, well, this will be something to watch. So I walk up the steps and sure enough, everybody's packed in the streets. And I look up and I see smoke coming from the Trade Center. And I'm like, that is one idiot pilot. What yeah. kind of moron says, well, this is definitely going to be in the paper tomorrow. So meanwhile... I got to get to court. So I go right up Thomas Street. I'm moving through the people and all that. I get to Thomas Street, go up to the magnometer, you know, put all my keys in there, go through the, the checkpoint. There's nobody else there. I breezed right through. I was like, good, because I was pushing it on time. Right. Get to the courtroom door. Nobody's in the hallways or anything like that. I go to the courtroom door, pull on the courtroom door. It's locked. I'm like, okay, ethical moment. What do I do? It's 15 minutes until court's supposed to start. Nobody's here and the door's locked. Well, I'm not falling for this. I'm staying right here. So I turned around and I sat at the door so nobody would have any illusions that I was on time. And sure enough, this bailiff comes walking up to me after a couple minutes in a, you know, he's got body armor on, has a shotgun, which is weird. Yeah. And he walks up and he says, what are you doing? It's like, I'm here for court. Right. And he's like, court's canceled. And I was like, yeah, are you saying that or is the judge saying that? Because I'm not getting dinged 500 bucks just because I'm following you. So I like took his name down, took his badge number. I was like, I'm putting all this down. Right. And he's like, trust me, it's canceled. I was like, all right, I'm holding you to that. So I get all this stuff and I'm like, all right, well, now I'm cut for the day. So now what do I do? So I was like, well, I better go see how this whole thing with the plane and all that works out. So I walk outside. What's the first thing I see when I enter, exit the courtyard, uh, the courthouse? I see one of the lawyers 
and one of the, and the plaintiff talking to each other. Oh, and I was like, no. now they're both pointing at the World Trade Center. <laughs> it's obvious what they're talking about. But I'm going, oh, busted. You guys are so busted. I'm making notes of this. I'm going to dime you out the second we get back into court. And, um, and so we're, we're there and I'm like, okay, well now I've taken my notes. I'm ready to snitch. And I'm, and I'm just watching every, everything in the building. And I remember seeing a bunch of school kids nearby. They were pointing up at the building, laughing, like, oh God, look at this. And, um, and then you, you know, you kept hearing noise that seemed a little, there was a little cognitive distance because you hear this noise and you, and it was different than the other noises you hear in the city. And then you started to realize that that debris falling off the building was people. Mm. And that's when I was like, oh, I'm a chaplain. I should probably be doing something right sure. now. And I was like, but what do I do? And then looking up and seeing um, these, uh, you know, small faces yeah. looking back at you. Yeah. And you're like, I, I can't do anything for you. Yeah. And they're looking down at you. And you're like, I got nothing. And the only thing I could do is I dropped to my knees. I started saying the Lord's Prayer. I was like, I guess that's, you know, that's what I'd want somebody to do for me. Right. If I was up there, that's the best I can offer. And um, at some point, I'd never been around mass hysteria before. But at some point, somebody said, like, there started to be a cry come up from the crowd. And they were like, they're pulling the plane out. And to this day, I've never heard anybody talk about that or what that was about. But everybody started saying, they're pulling the plane out, they're pulling the plane out. And just hear like hundreds of thousands of people panic at the same time was a feeling I'd never been around before or since. I was like, oh my Lord. And everybody turned like with one body and started running up West Broadway. Wow. I, mean, I was on West Broadway, so I'm sure they're doing this on other streets, but that's <laughs> where I was. And everybody started running and I heard a thunderclap. And it was all the electronics that had dropped, camcorders, pagers, the few cell phones that were around back then. And and I I remember, to this day, I remember so clearly exactly what I thought each of those moments. And the first thing I thought is I was like, wow, we're in a different era. I didn't realize people had this much technology. (laughs) It's so weird, like where your mind goes. And I was like, and that was the first thing that struck me. It's like that noise from all the technology dropping. And then the second thought was, if you've got all this technology, why are you dropping it? So I started running. And as I was running, I started scooping up cell phones and pagers because I was like, well, people just drop these. Right. Presumably you're going to want them back. I'm still thinking like it's 1998 and somebody dropped their phone in front of you. So I'm just scooping up phones and people are going, they're pulling the plane out and, and people are racing. And I was like, maybe I should stop worrying about the phones. And that, I again, hindsight's a beautiful thing. I think at that point was when I, that was my pre and post 9-11 change of mind, was when suddenly I went from the guy that was picking up cell phones to going, no, you need to move and you need to move now. And I just started full out sprinting and we got up to, I think, uh, White Street or something like that. And everybody suddenly slowed down and nothing had happened with the buildings. And it just, the hysteria then died. And I was like, okay. So is anything going to happen? But now the police have moved the barriers up. They've locked everything off. At this point, now I'm invested. I don't know. I still think it's some idiot pilot. But yeah. I'm like, oh, this is going to be like the Triangle Factory fire in yes. New York. This is going to be like a disaster that we always hear about. Um, and it, I was like, I'll always be able to say I was here for this. 
So I'm, I'm watching, and then eventually, spoiler alert, the buildings do come down. And the first one, when it went, I mean, I still remember the crack and seeing the building slide. Uh-huh. And then, and now everybody going, okay, this that last one was the fire drill. Now we're actually doing this and turning and running. Um, and then at that point, we ran up to Canal Street. And I, honestly, Charlie, I can't remember. I feel like, I, can't, I seriously can't remember if this was from watching the news or if this is my actual memory. It all kind of gets blurred together. I feel like I looked behind me and I feel like I saw cloud after cloud take street after street after street and catch up with me. I know I had ash on my shoes and the bottom part of my legs. It didn't cover me. It didn't totally encompass me. But I can't remember if I actually looked back or if that was just from news that I saw in the days later. But I remember running and I remember there was nothing, as I talked before about my respect for police and people that keep Mm -hmm. you safe. I remember one of the most jarring moments of that was to run up West Broadway and I'll never forget seeing an FBI agent in his FBI windbreaker looking at everybody and going, people, people, calm down, calm down, calm. And just start to stop saying it as he looked up and looked at the building and just to see the fear go over his face. And I remember people just tackling him and grab and dragging him up West Broadway. And you saw that repeatedly, cops and, and FBI agents being dragged up by people. And um, when we got to Canal Street, I think it was, that's where the barriers then get set up. And we stood there. And at that point, I looked and nobody was laughing anymore. And I remember the biggest takeaway for me was, look, I remember a Rastafarian bike messenger. I remember this very white, European-ish looking couple. I remember the construction workers. I remember a couple of random office workers, a guy in a suit. Everybody was crying. And it was the first time in my life as a New Yorker that I had seen an experience, us all register the same experience, no matter who we were, where we were from. As a New Yorker, you never see that. We're all coming from different places, different backgrounds and all that. And that's part of what makes New York awesome. But this was the first thing I'd ever seen that actually synced us all up. And we were all like starting at square one together. And that sense of community and that, and I mean, in a perverse way, that was the upside is there was a sense of unity and like we're all in this together. We, I didn't know what this was, but I knew we're all sharing this emotional moment yeah. together. And then a cry went up um, from all the union guys that were doing construction on Canal Street. And they started going, union, union. They're like, hey, everyone with a union card. Let's go. We're going in there. We're going to go save people. And they start going and the cops held them up. We're like, no, no, no. You guys aren't going anywhere near there. And so then I started the long walk back up Manhattan to my home. And as I was walking... All these cars had their doors open, the parked cars, and people were listening to the radios. And I wasn't stopping. I was like, I was just there. I live yeah. this. I don't need to hear anything. Right. About and I'm walking, walking, walking. And finally, by the time I'm almost out of Soho, I'd walked for half a mile or so. Um, I did start to hear more and more just weird things. I was like, okay, let me just stop. And I just stopped and listened. And they were like, and then at the Pentagon, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what kind of solipsistic news station is talking about the Pentagon right now? We just had the biggest buildings in New York City come down. Why are you talking about national news? This should be on every, this should be the story right now. Right. And then I kept listening. I was like, wait, what happened at the Pentagon? And wait, what was that that happened at the Trade Center? And suddenly I was like, oh, this is war. And it blew me away. I was like, 
this is what that's like. All those pictures I'd seen growing up of Beirut in 83, mm -hmm. the, all the war-torn areas in the world, suddenly I felt a kinship with that. And walking back up the rest of Manhattan Island, um, I remember seeing a couple of businessmen looking really depressed and morose. They're like, oh, I'm going to go into a bar. I remember going, you losers, to be defeated and just slunk off like that. And then I saw other people going, one guy was like, I'm going to go shave my head and I'm going to the Marines. And I was like, hey, there we go. And then I was thinking about myself. I was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, if there's ever a time to join, this is it. And I was like, but wait, be wise. You're in a position that you can do an immense amount of good right now in the prisons. And maybe there's, maybe God has placed this challenge in front of you because you're needed where you are right now. And that was the path I went down for better or for worse. Um, but without getting too much further into that, I'll just say it was a day for anomalies. Now, the biggest anomaly, like literally after that, and bear in mind, I've been up all night doing legal proofreading. So I was a little, I was kind of out of my mind to begin with at the start of this day. But as I was walking up Lexington Avenue, I remember at about 28th Street where the armory is, where now the New York National Guard Infantry Unit stationed, or it was then too. I remember seeing uh, Burt Young, the actor that played Rocky's brother in the Rocky movies. So, like, let me, let me set the scene. Every, the police, the fire had all moved. Like, they cleared out the entire okay. avenue so that only fire trucks were coming down Lexington Avenue or going back up. And everybody was confined to the sidewalks. So it's all like that. But walking down the middle of Lexington Avenue is Burt Young. And I'm walking up Lexington Avenue. And I remember going, it's Burt Young. Like literally a pink elephant could have come walking out of nowhere and I'd have been like, yep, that's what else is going to happen today. And he was looking disoriented and out of it. Yeah. And I was like, the heck's going on with Burt Young right now? It was just so weird. It was like, it was a day of just weird things happening. And then that night, I remember it rained, it poured and there was a lightning storm. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night thinking buildings were dropping around me. And at that point, again, can't believe I'm getting emotional. This, but I remember again, um, just like the violence I saw growing up, uh, when the cops would show up, I felt really good. I was mm -hmm. like, thank, thank God law and order is here. Thank God justice is here and all that. Uh, that night, in, in the middle of the sounds of what I thought were buildings crashing around me, to hear the sounds of the planes, the jets, whatever, the F-16, yeah. whatever. I was like, yeah, there's people up there watching for us. And I was like, that's noble. And, um, and for me, at that point, sitting in my room, looking at all this stuff I had accrued over my life and over my family's career in show business... Mel Brooks movies and posters and things like that. And they, I looked at them and they all had no meaning. I was like, this is war. All color is sapped. All vibrancy is sapped. Mm -hmm. And that's driven me the rest of my life to go, look, I do believe art is the apex of human civilization. I think it's what makes life worth living. The problem is it's delicate. Yeah, It doesn't take much for that to go away. And when we fetishize entertainment, we're fetishizing something that's very, very fragile. It is not a pillar to build on. It is the joy of life, but it's ephemeral. And instead, the rock, the stuff that is worth building on, is that sense of security and that sense of justice and order and stability. And um, yeah, that firmed up a lot of stuff in my mind. And that's kind of themes I keep coming back to over and over in my life and almost every day since. So I've never celebrated 
done any sort of memorial really for 9-11. So I'm like, that, that's it. I mean, my military career is a testament to it. My every day yeah. is a testament to that because I'm, I'm, I mean, that was truly a life changing experience. And, um, and one that I, if I'm evangelical about anything, it's about Americans now as it becomes kind of more like the great depression that people just kind of, if you didn't live through it, it's kind of like, Oh, my grandpa's <laughs> going off on the great depression again. But it's like, no, you really need to understand why that happened and the impact of it and what we as a country learned from it. And it's also why I defend to the hilt the GWAT. And I think it's it's been very posh for a lot of veterans to adopt the language or feel an obligation to adopt the language of the anti-war Vietnam era. And I'm like, yeah, that was a different war and a different time, man. That GWAT... When I knew that we were sending ODAs to Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and when I, you know, and and then even Iraq, maybe even especially Iraq, I was like, I'm glad. I'm really glad because, yeah, it's trite to say, but that doesn't make it any less true. But it's like it has to happen over there, not here. Yes. And for me, um, yeah, those were those were major political and emotional moments in my life that. Um, I've always been open to being talked out of or having my mind changed to them and nothing I've ever done or seen has ever changed my mind. It's only strengthened my opinion of that really long answer to a short question. But anyway, I think that. that was a fascinating story, Chris. That's what an amazing experience and what good motivation for folks who didn't experience that. I mean, teaching at West Point, I'm teaching folks who weren't born then who have no recollection of it. It's ancient history to yeah. them. Yeah. And there you were living it. Yeah. And I was thinking when you were talking about your initial reaction to it. So I was in the army when that happened. Right. Lola, my my wife and your coworker, we were stationed in the Republic of Korea. And it's, it's a whole different day yeah. in Korea when yeah. this happened. So I remember we got the news that a plane hit the World Trade Center. And in my mind, I... A terrorist attack that this was deliberate was the furthest thing I could think of. And and you mentioned the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire right, earlier. Right. And that's how you framed it. For me, I remember reading that right after World War II, a B-52 pilot crashed into the Empire State Building in fog. So I was like, oh, wow. that's wow, it's amazing huh. in, in 2001 <laughs> that we have these accidents. And then I heard that another plane hit. And I just, first reports are always wrong, right? right. It's probably the same plane, man. Right. Why, two, right. What are the chances that two pilots are going right. to have an accident like right. that? And then over the course of the day, of course, you hear about Pennsylvania yeah. and you hear yeah. about Pentagon. And it, it took a while to realize we're at war. And of course, we thought that the North Koreans were going to use that as an opportunity to come south and everything else. And then everything that happened yeah. after that. So it really is amazing when people face with all kind of trauma like that, just kind of relate it to things that they can deal with because no one could deal with the time that someone right. would do that. Right. Well, and, and I think it's also a, um, it's a society's gut check. I mean, I think that's something that gets glossed over a lot, but it's like we as a collective American society, we're like, Hey man, this is it. Yeah. There's no moral relativism about this. Yeah. There's nothing equivocating about this. This is truly, you just got punched in the face. What are you going to do about yes. it? Punk. Like that was yeah. that moment. So it was like, so, so, and, and what, what and I, I think the value in talking about it now is to remind ourselves, you had better be prepared to defend yourself from a punch in the face because it does happen. Yes. Societies do get gut checked. 
And I worry, I worry that we don't have the stomach for, the, for righteous fights now. I feel like it's very lazy and easy for us to talk about war's not the answer. And I always like that bumper sticker, other than communism, fascism, and slavery, war's never solved anything. <laughs> you know, I, I think it depends what the war's for. I think yeah. we all can agree World War I was a debacle and never should have been fought and had no reason. But not every war is World War I. Smedley Butler was only talking about, you know, that, that was major for him. But there have been other wars, and yes. some wars are righteous and need to be fought. And that's the only way you can mitigate a problem. And I think this was one where it was very clearly a righteous fight on our part to go, no, you don't get to just come and slaughter us in our home turf in that way. And I hope we have the stamina and the memory to remember what happened and the stamina to continue to do that and defend our interests when and where they're, they're threatened. I hope so too, because it seems harder and harder to do now. I, yeah. I read something today that Americans don't have values that are worth dying for anymore. They have values that are worth living for. And because it's, uh, it's all about themselves, you don't get to enjoy yeah. Yeah. your videos on TikTok if you're dead. So that's a very interesting point that you just raised about that, Chris. Yeah, and it's, I think it's Charlie. That's a great. That's a great way of looking at. it. I think it's great to always ask, what is worth fighting for? Yeah, you know, and that's that's why I always said during the Bush years when people really would come down and say, "What is worth fighting for?" Okay, you don't like this. What would you fight for? At what point do you go? I'm threatened enough, and and this is a just enough cause to fight. And I guarantee everybody has something that is worth fighting for. It's just a question of what is it. And to my mind, it's very hard to argue that those were not the fights we needed to be having. <laughs> For sure. You know? Well, also, when I was in grad school, the, ser- the serious situation was kicking off. And I remember right. a lot of my right. classmates, especially the undergrads, were asking me, when are we going to do something? And by we, of course, they meant me, because I was in the <laughs> Army. And then right. is basically, when is the U.S. military going to do something about it? And at that point, I'd been to Iraq and Afghanistan seven times. And I was tired of fighting other people's wars. And I told him, look, if you want to go do something, go. Mm -hmm. I'll help you get there. But I'm not interested in fighting other people's fights anymore. Syrians need to to fight for themselves. And to their credit, one of my classmates, grad school classmate, actually went over to Syria and did humanitarian work. Mm -hmm. And I'm super proud of him to this day for doing that because he didn't expect someone else to go mm-hmm. fight his war and support his values. And I think too many Americans are. There are plenty of things that I think Americans are happy to have someone else fight for for them, but fewer things that they're willing to fight for themselves, especially anything that puts them in physical peril. Yeah, or, or maybe even just makes them uncomfortable. Right. I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but yeah, I, I, I feel like um, comfort is a big thing in our country. Yep. We don't like to be uncomfortable. And it's funny, you know, when I talk to people now and now that I'm kind of immersed in the civilian world (laughs) and I hear about different people's traumatic years and all this and this I don't want to sound patronizing or or uh, painting with too broad a brush that ah civilian problems aren't real problems I'm not trying to say that but some of you and I have talked about before that high volume of significant emotional events that essentially defines a veteran's life in the in the military that's not easily replicated except in pretty rare and traumatic circumstances in the civilian population. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and try to draw parallels and, oh, well, I had this hard year. And it's like, I, I hear those details. And I, I mean, literally my last deployment to Afghanistan, 
when I was in, I was coming back from R and R, and we were in uh, uh, Cutter, and one of the guys that was co-located with me, waiting to jump on the bird back to Afghanistan, was this uh, field artillery active duty uh, senior NCO. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, I'm coming back from R&R. I was like, well, why are you, where were you? And he's like, yeah, I had to go back home for a minute. Uh, my ex-wife and her husband held my daughter hostage and then killed her. Oh. And, we've, and I had to testify against her. And they're trying to turn my kids against me. And I'm sitting there just going, good Lord. Oh, my Lord. And the thing is, is it's not just that. It's that he's doing that while also living an active duty, repressed slash disciplined army lifestyle, yeah. where which has included multiple combat deployments. It's a field artillery guy. And now, and he's like, I just want to go back to the simplicity of Afghanistan and right. run my guys now. So I'm going from major personal trauma to major geopolitical trauma. And that's your transition. And it's that over and over. And I can't tell you the number of dudes that I, I mean, I'm sure you're the same way that you listen to. You listen to some of their stories about what's going on for them personally. You know, hey, I was going through a divorce then. And, you know, that's when, of course, we got called to Iraq. And it's like, OK, so you're doing going through a divorce and you're fighting in a combat zone. You're like the amount. And then you come back and you get diagnosed with cancer. It's like, of course. Yeah. So it's like the, the, the number of those significant emotional events that are all happening and then you, and then again, I, I got to check myself because I don't want to sound like one of those, you know, vets at the end of the bar going, ah, you <laughs> civilians are soft and don't know what you're dealing with. But I mean, at the same time, you and I know people where it's like, well, don't tell me about hardship. I had to redesign my bathroom last right. year. And that was, you know, and you're, and you're sitting there going, bro, like, and, and, and that, let me, let me be clear. I don't begrudge that at all. I'm not glorifying trauma or saying you have to have done all that by no means. I think the only difference is, to be clear-headed about it and go, thank God I can design my bathroom. Mm-hmm. And that's my biggest worry. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. If that's all you, the only trauma you have that year, awesome. Great. I hope, I hope that's true for everybody. The only, the only sin as I see it is to think that that is a major trauma and to put that on a moral plane with severe trauma that other Americans are going through on your behalf to make you safe. Exactly. That, to me, is, is where the foible happens. Well, let's go back to something you mentioned earlier. As a young man, you were looking for the good fight. Yeah. You were looking for yeah. it in, in recreation. You were looking for it in your fraternity. Yeah. looking for it in the military. Some people say that because there's not enough good fight to go around in America because we live mm-hmm. life so well now, that people are looking for reasons to be upset and to go go out and fight for things that maybe aren't so important. Do you think that's relatable based on what you just said? Yeah, I I, I do. I and I do because I think. I mean, look, I've never been a young woman, so I don't know what it's like <laughs> for a young woman. But as a, as a young man, I think every young man has his blood boiling. It's just something in us. Mm-hmm. It's the testosterone. Mm-hmm. It's the DNA. We, we do need a noble fight. We need something worthwhile to immerse ourselves in. Now, maybe you're Mark Cuban and you invent broadband. <laughs> maybe you're, you know, whatever, Dale Comstock and you go through CAG. Like, whatever right. it is. But you need something that's going to be important and driving you enough to go, um, to, to, make, to make you understand yourself. And to feel like I've unleashed myself in a way, and have been pushed in a way that nothing else Nothing else would have pushed me to discover this about myself because you want to know who am I. It's, mm-hmm. it's why, you know, in the military, we, we do sometimes, to our fault, 
look down on civilians where we go, oh, you're, you think you're a tough guy because you're out at the bar. You're not really tough because in the military, there's ways that you can test yourself and see just how tough you are. Yes. And you'll get corrected pretty quickly if you go, <laughs> I really thought I was pretty bad. And now I'm realizing, nah, you kind of like lying on the couch. You know? And we're very comfortable with that. It gives yeah. us a sense of self-assurance where we go, hey, I've been pushed to my limit. I know how hard I can push. And I know where my limit is. And I know other guys push harder physically. Okay, cool. So it gives you a comfort because you've done it. You've pushed yeah. the boat out into the water so you know where you're at. I think every young man, in, in my experience, not just from my own personal experience, but in young guys I've seen and worked with and all that, I, I do think every young man needs that. Now, the problem comes with if you don't, what do you value as a noble fight? Mm. And what I see now is a weaponization of things that I personally do not think are very noble fights. And I'm like, you're using your young male capital, your testosterone, your enthusiasm, your strength in something that's going to be counterproductive. And, and, and the problem is, is that we're not devoid of good fights. There are good fights to be had, but you're being steered away from them. You're being steered into something else. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's unfortunate. And I think it's a, a, a byproduct of our culture. I think everything, I mean, I think it was Andrew Breitbart that coined this phrase, but everything is downstream of culture. Politics, individuality, all that, our ethos all comes from culture. What's the movies? What's the TV? What's the music you're listening to? That determines everything else. If you don't fix the culture, you can elect whatever politicians you like. It's, it's going to be rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm. You have to fix the culture. And, and by fix the culture, I'm implying that there's something wrong in the culture. Um, I think there is. I don't think it's completely beyond all hope, but I think there's definitely things where we are not in, we are not an ennobling culture. We are a very self-deprecating and self-flagellating culture. And there's a lot of nobility in self-deprecation and self-flagellation. That is a beautiful quality. Oh, that the Russians had that in some degree. <laughs> Maybe they wouldn't be in the place they're in. Right. But nonetheless, it shouldn't be all the culture is. And one of the things, just to flash back briefly to 9-11, one of the things that, and I think you and I have talked about this, one of the things that caught me in the days after 9-11, I remember going to MTV and going, oh, man, I'm really emotionally at a low place. Well, what do you do when you're a product of the 80s and 90s? You gotta go watch TV and try to get inspired, right? And I go to MTV and they played, you know, Born in the USA, which is not actually a pro-American song. <laughs> and then they played John Cougar Mellencamp's Pink Houses, which I appreciate he's from Indiana, but Pink House is about the evils of capitalism. Uh, they played live song, Overcome, which is the refrain is, I am overcome. Not exactly an ennobling, empowering song. Beautiful, yeah. melodic, poignant, but in the wake of a, something that demanded strength from America culturally for us to be unified in a message of vision and clarity about who we are and what we stand for, we had no cultural language for it. There was no vocabulary to process that. Instead, all we could do is go back to John Fogarty and CCR and the, and the Vietnam War. But that's anti-war culture that isn't appropriate for this particular conflict. But it's all we had. Right. And that, to me, is why now veterans getting into the arts and into the culture is so crucial. Because not that veterans are perfect or not that we have you know innate clarity or unity of messaging... But if I have to gamble on somebody to give a sanity check to American culture and imbue it with a sense of proportion and uh, balance, I'll, I'll, I'll place a gamble on veterans being able to do that because 
we do we should have the ability to pull back and go hold on guys maybe not everything needs to revolve around orange county housewives mm-hmm. or maybe not everything has to be about fashion maybe not everything has to be frivolous superficial you know the voice nothing wrong with any of that but that can't be all there is and there should be something that when we as a people need it, something we can go to, a touchstone that we can go to, it says, hell yeah, this is who we are. This is what we're about. That's why country music started to take off. And I mean, as a New Yorker who did not listen to country music, all had no affinity, no relation <laughs> to it, as hokey as it sounds, and I know there are a lot of people from middle America and the South that were born to this music, so they resented it when they heard this <laughs> at the end of boot camp. But I know at the end of boot camp when we graduated, uh, they played Toby Keith, American Soldier. I've heard, I know that people have been on USO tours with Toby Keith. He wasn't cool to them or whatever. And I, I get it. But all I'll say as a New Yorker who lived through 9-11 at the end of boot camp, when they played that song and I'm listening to those lyrics, I was like, that's it. He captured it. They sang something. I mean, yeah, it's hokey, but what the heck? I mean, Lady Gaga's hokey too, just in about other subjects. I mean, it's all hokey. It's all just pop songs. Yeah. But hey, it's something I can gravitate towards and hook onto and go, if I you need a little boost. And to this day, I hear the song as hokey as it is, as much as everybody from the South goes, Toby Keith, he's over. I get it. I'm a New Yorker. I'm new to country. But <laughs> point is, when I hear that song, I still tear up because it reminds me of that time and yeah. the boot camp and, God forbid, some pro-American ideals. And I'm like, I get it. We can. I will be happily, happily flagellate America for its sins. But the sins of America you can find in every single established country on the planet. What makes America unique is not its sins. It is its successes. And if you don't acknowledge them, you are giving away your culture and therefore your youth, your education, your society to people that wish ill. And we already know what that looks like. Yep. People don't seem to remember we are the exception. And I love the people that are coming up. America, we're just tired of these old ways of doing things here in America. What old ways of doing things? <laughs> we're the new kid on the block. The things that you say are new, tribalism, identity politics, all that. That's how the world is. Yeah. You and I know that. You and I have yep. spent a lot of time in the third world. Yep. That is how the world works. That's not new. That's the oldest ideology on the planet. We're new. The idea that the individual is the highest political unit. Novel. Novel <laughs> idea. You know, we're the unique entity. So, but there has to be something in the culture that reflects that. And to this day, we should all just curse Joe McCarthy. Because thanks to him, that per- used to be Hollywood and American culture supported America up until McCarthyism. And after Joseph McCarthy, it perverted all of media, all of entertainment to increasingly be anti-American. And that is a continual disservice that he did. And what's really tragic about it is he was right. There were communists <laughs> in Hollywood. There were communists around. But by painting with too broad a brush, being way too inaccurate, being way too obtuse, he screwed it up for everybody. And he poisoned a lot of people against America in a way that has endured now for over half a century. And it, you know it's going to be tough to reverse so that's the that's the the debt we owe Joe McCarthy, but it's it's unfortunate, and we do, and I hope that the GWAT veterans especially can be at the tip of the spear in reversing that and bringing pro Americanism, not jingoism, not xenophobia, 
but pro-Americanism, understanding the upside of America and the uniqueness of America into American culture. I think it's crucially important, and I do actually think it's not completely unrelated to a national security priority, because you don't have that. It doesn't matter who SecDef is. Yes. It doesn't matter what the policies are. You, you, we, we recruit from society, and if you're not tracking culture and how people, the youth are being trained and taught and all that, then you're going to end up with people you're, that are not going to execute the policies you'd like to see. Well, I think that's a great point because right now the Army in particular is experiencing something like a 40% shortage in yeah. recruiting. And part of that, there's many reasons for it. The economy is one of them. But I, I also think that it is the culture. So you've got half of America that is pro-enlistment, for example, mm-hmm. that might say, people might say, hey, don't go in right now because there's too many problems and we don't support this and that. And you've got half of America saying, well, our country is inherently racist. Why would you right. support and defend the constitution of a country that's, that's born in sin? It's getting hard. A hundred percent. If you don't believe in what America is, it's really hard to fight for America. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're enfranchising a disbelief in America. And as I say, I mean, it, there's nothing, zero wrong with taking critical analysis of America. But you can't do it in a vacuum. Yeah. If you're going to critique America, you might want to take a look at all the other countries and just ask yourself, who's done better? Yeah. Got it. All right. We did a lot of bad things. Gotcha. Tracking. Who's done better? How's France doing right now, by the way? How's the Netherlands doing? Right. How'd the Belgians do in the Congo? Right? And, or dare I say, how are the Chinese doing in Africa right now? Like, we can go back and we we can relitigate the past to our heart's content, but at a certain point we might want to take stock of what's actually happening in the world right now. You, You care about slavery 150 years ago, awesome, I'm there with you. You might also want to give a half-second consideration to the slavery going on right now in the world and who's doing it and in what way. Debt diplomacy, the one silk, one road, yeah. all the ways that, that we are being lapped and, and um, flanked, outflanked by our geopolitical enemies. Um, and, and not just ours, because if you don't care about America, I get that that wouldn't mean anything to you. But look at the people that they're subjugating. Look at what the Russians are doing. Look at what the Chinese are doing. Look at what the North Koreans are doing to their own people. Look at what Iran is doing and what it's trying to suppress. Pay attention to what's actually going on in the world. And then I think it does start to put the sins of America in pretty good... Then you're able to proportion it and Mm -hmm. balance it well. And I think that's something um, that is... I think it's a national security priority to make sure that we have... You've got to be able to correct that narrative and, and balance it and understand the benefit of the United States. Yeah, and these policies and the shifts in cultures have consequences. I was in Honduras last week, and one of the things they were talking about, the embassy and the, the soft task force I was with, were talking about how something eight out of the 15 countries that still recognize Taiwan are in Central and South America, including Honduras, one of the things we talked about at length at the embassy. And then two days later, I get home, and Honduras has withdrawn their recognition and because they're closing up to China. Yeah. Because people are seeing that America is weak right now, and this is their time to move. This is time to move into Ukraine. It's the time to move into Central America. It's time to move into to, to Africa. It's time to build more islands and militarize them, and that's going to be bad. So our children are going to have to deal with this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And and to to not appreciate the good of America is to weaken the only shield 
against tyranny. Whether right. it, you can hate America all day long, but you have to recognize the good, the bulwark for good that America has been in the last 60 years, let's say, especially in the developing and third world. I mean, you can look at yeah. PEPFAR and what that did for yep. AIDS in Africa, yep. but you can also look geopolitically at what we've done there and how we've helped, materially helped so many countries try to stabilize, mm -hmm. certainly in Latin America, certainly in Europe, certainly in Eastern Europe. Um, we have been a bulwark for good. I mean, the most obvious example is to go back to the fall of communism and the fall of the Soviet Union when Ronald Reagan would actively say the names of people that were in the gulags. Now we pretend like the Uyghurs aren't being right. massacred, killed, surveilled, abused in China. We, we want to pretend that's not a problem. We used to have leadership that would actually say, this person is currently in the gulag, that person's in the gulag, and we know from those records that people in the gulags would get word of that and go, the American president knows my name. That means something. Yeah. And it means something because they go, there is good in the world and somebody is willing to put word and muscle to it. That's important. And um, so say what we will about America. If you don't defend America and defend its identity intellectually, culturally, and then, of course, militarily, um, you weaken the bulwark of good yeah. that inhibits tyranny. And that's a bad, bad, bad place to be. Absolutely is. And Chris, I want to go back to a conversation we were having earlier. We talked about you coming in the Army and being a firefighter, but you didn't stay a firefighter. So can we go on to what happened after that and how you got into what you did in the special operations community and what you did downrange a little bit? I know you can't go into detail about it because of the nature of your work, but I think that lends itself very well to the other things we're talking about yeah. and helps explain your perspective. Yeah, it does. It's weird. I, I'm still, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm still weirded out talking about it. I, I like, I, I still feel, you know what I feel? I, I still feel like it's like, um, it's like asking somebody on their honeymoon. So what was the sex like the first night? <laughs> you know, and it's like, and, and it, it's like, and like with you, because you and I did, did very similar work. Yeah. It, you know, I, we could talk about it like offline. I'm like, yeah, you know, I could, I could talk about it with Charlie, but it's weird. I, I feel yeah, exposed and weird talking about it now. But yeah, um, so yeah, when, um, not to be flip about it, but yeah, when my, when my folks were gone, I was like, well, it's a little late in the day to be doing this, but I think I can now try to make up for lost time and get in the fight as much as I possibly mm -hmm. can. And then it was just a matter of, well, what's going to make the most sense and what can I do? And initially I was like, well... Time to do 11 Bravo. <laughs> and I was in good shape and all that, but I was like, dude, you're 37. You really want to be running around with like a bunch of... No, you, know, you don't. 19-year-olds no. <laughs> and stuff like that. And, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, probably not. So then um, I had a, a Army Reserve recruiter who was like, uh, he, he was like, hey, um, what about this 35 Lima? What about doing counterintelligence? And I was like, yeah, I was like, of all the jobs, like that always, that's always really vague on goarmy.com. So I was like, yeah, what, what exactly? I was like, I kind of have an idea. And he's like, okay, did you see, uh, what was that movie with the seals? Act of Valor? Was that the one with all the active duty seals in it? Oh gosh. I think it, I think it was where they right? were like Active a seal slide. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And so he's like, he's like, all right, did you see Act of Valor? And I was like, yeah. He's like, all right, remember that guy on the boat? who's talking to the drug dealer or the terrorist, whatever, and then slaps the thing on the table and scares him. He's like, that's counterintelligence. Like, 
I don't think it really is, but right. I'm going to take your word for it. I was like, I'm willing, I'm willing to right, drink that Kool-Aid right. for a little bit and, and, and have some, some delusional dreams that that's what it is. So anyway, uh, it was great because they had a well-trained slot for me in the Army Reserve. So I was able to do that. Uh, and and it, that process, as you know, takes a minute to yeah. go through, and it's a long and laborious uh, annoying. It, it's long and laborious without the glory of going. <laughs> yeah, I went through the Q course. You know, it's like right. it's long and laborious, and you did a lot of paperwork and sat around and waited. But um, went through that uh, and and went through the course, and then um, and then before actually it was before I was even out of school for it, I was already in touch with um, a National Guard Special Operations Group to go over there. And so when I got out of school, I, I jumped to the guard, and that was. And I will say this. That is the loophole that for certain enlisted, I can't speak for the officer ranks, but for certain enlisted people in certain job fields, you really should be in a guard special operations unit. Mm. It is the best loophole and the best life you can possibly ask for in the military. Nonstop deployments, got to deploy every single year, and you have three daddies. For me, I had the state that we belonged to. I had SOCOM, and then I also had the job board. And I could go onto the job board and pick different assignments. So every time a deployment ended, and then I don't have to show up at the unit for six months after a deployment. So I literally would come back. So I became what they call a guard bum. I would do a deployment, come back, cool my heels for a month or two, and then push out for another deployment. And what was great is then I could sit around and look at all my options. And if I didn't like it while I was in it, it's like, hey, the thing's going to end. The deployment's going to end. And then you get to choose your next adventure. And you just keep doing it. And in the meantime, you're getting all the accolades of doing all these deployments. So people are like, what school do you want to go to? How can I get you here? For me, I was living at the time in Brooklyn, which was delightful because the BAH for Brooklyn was through the roof. I was making more than my chief three. So they kept going, hey, we need to promote you. I was like, no, 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 don't promote me. Deploy me. Deploy me again. That's what you need to do. Just keep deploying me. And it was, and it was beautiful. And uh, so it was, and I was like, more people should know about this because then when I went to get promoted and I'm in a room with all active duty guys. They hated the job. They were like, I've never done anything. Um, I, there was talk of a deployment or I went there, but it was 90 days and then they pulled me back. Yeah. They're getting, and they're like, I'm miserable. I don't know why I'm at Fort Campbell. I'm doing all this. Like they were, they were, and I was like, you guys need to come to the guard, man. I pick, I choose my own adventure. I get better BAH than you guys. And then I get to have vacations like uh, a couple months a year when I'm in between deployments. And then on my deployment, if God forbid it's over nine months, I get R&R. So I'm going to Iceland. I'm going to Italy. I'm going to all these places. You know, it was just, it was awesome. I, I loved it. Should I wish I'd been doing it 10, 15 years earlier, but because it, it is hard on the family and all that. But, um, but yeah, I did that and I absolutely adored the job. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's a tricky job. It's a, it, it's a tricky job. And as you know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, military intelligence is a very strange and neurotic and a field. And I, I guess I relate it. I relate a lot of things in intelligence to dating. Okay. I feel like no one leaves MI as a hero. There will always, for every person that leaves as a hero or can look to accolades mm-hmm. on one thing or another, there's going to be six people that go, Psh, I was with that guy. <laughs> Not that special. And I, this is why I relate it to dating. It's like going on a date and having six people that may or may not like you all critique your date. Mm-hmm. And you're like, but hey, 
I, I ended up marrying the girl. Yeah, you did. But I mean, but was, dude, yeah. what kind of marriage is that? Like, it's not that good. And let me tell you how you pulled out her seat and the way you asked for wine. No, yeah. Bushley. There's, it's, it's a business of second guessing and all that, which makes, I think, a lot of people very neurotic. Mm. And when you make people excessively neurotic, you get some very weird behavior yes. and weird character traits, weird personality developments. And so there's, there's a lot of stuff that that is challenging in that field. And as you know, in the soft community, then even more so, because now you've got a heightened playing field. You've got people that are very mission-oriented and you're doing other work that can sometimes be easily misinterpreted. Yes. Aren't you the guy from Active Valor? No, you're not. And so <laughs> so it, it gets a little weird as to what that all means. And and uh, but I, But at the end of the day, I loved the job. I loved it most of all, I think, because... Um, I love the autonomy. Yeah. I, I, one time I deployed as part of a unit, but every other time I deployed as a singleton. Um, and when I got there, there were a couple of times I had a partner, but generally I, op- I was able to operate alone. I was given a lot of latitude, um, which I'm immensely grateful for and for the people that gave me top cover to give me that latitude. Um, high ranking people, in some cases, even the highest ranking military personnel in certain countries. They're nice. like, I've got your back. Go do X, Y, and Z. And I was like, holy crap. Okay. And, and it, it, as you know, it's, it's a weird job field because it's one of those fields where there's times you look at yourself and go, I can't believe I'm doing this like in the movies. And there are other times where you go, I can't believe this is so boring and dull <laughs> and stupid. And it's like, and it's, and, but the, what's amazing is that it's not just that you have both of those, it's you have both of those in rapid succession yeah. and constantly. Yeah. So you're constantly going, wait, I'm sorry, is this a sexy job or isn't it a sexy job? I thought it was because we were doing that, right? I'm not crazy. We did just do that, right? But then you're like, but wait, I, okay, but we're doing, the, okay. I, and it's, it's constant, you know, schizophrenia with that. Um, but I loved it. I, I do believe, um, probably like everybody, I'm biased. I think it's the best job in the military if yeah. you like it. Um, and I say that because what I really enjoyed, I think, the most about it was the subject matter expertise that you gain on countries. I love anthropology. I love history. And I loved being, I loved the indigenous people of whatever country I was mm. in. I, I It's the New Yorker in me. I love foreign people because I feel like I'm at home in New York. I'm like, oh yeah, I've been in a cab with you. Yeah, I've been on the subway <laughs> with you. Like it's not an event. Yeah. So I loved being in third world countries with these people. And I loved eating the food. And it's the old saying, you know, if you really want to know a culture, Eat the food, speak the language, and screw the women. Yeah. Um, obviously, we can't do the third, or we shouldn't do the third. Uh, but doing the first two, um, I love that. And I love learning the culture. And I loved seeing the common interests we had. But I also loved looking at their societies mm-hmm. and how they work and what it's like to really be in a world where you're suspicious of everyone. Mm-hmm. You don't know who you can trust, who you can't, if you're going to get killed that night. Um, I love dealing with people in high-stress situations like that. And... Um, and I loved then being able to come back to the States and have the knowledge that I had seen. I mean, we're all blind men trying to describe an elephant, but I felt like there were times where I came back and I was like, um, I know this society. I know this culture. I got it. And I now, and now when I'm in America, if I'm hearing similar things, dissimilar things, or if I just want to compare and contrast myself, I felt like I really had insight. And I so appreciated that. The problem is you can't do anything about it because yeah. what are you going to do? Talk to people about it, yeah. write about it. You know, it's like you, you can't do much with it. 
except try to think, how is this going to influence the choices I make the rest of my life? How do I raise my children? How do I interact with society? What are the causes I care about? And that to me is where I came out going, culture is important. Education is important. Um, entertainment mm-hmm. is important. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those three things, entertainment, news, and, and education. Like those three things, those determine a lot because in too many countries, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's just like, yeah, where those go, a lot else goes. And, it, and, and understanding that that's the place to apply leverage. Well, is that kind of what led you into what you're doing now with the Veterans Repertory Theater? 100%. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, not 100%. I shouldn't be so glib. Yeah, I mean, I come to Vet Rep, honestly, because my family was three generations in the theater. I love the theater. I love live performance. Um, I'm not averse to film and TV. It's just too expensive, too complicated, <laughs> and, I, and I don't have the patience for it. Right. But I love the quick flash to bang of doing live performances. And there's nothing like a live stand-up set, live music, mm-hmm. live theater, the festival you know, that, we were, that we did. It's just all those things are kinetic. They're community-based. They build movements. And there's nothing like being in a room with a bunch of people all emotionally reacting to the same stimulus. Um, but as to whether or not I could indulge that passion... That was formed by my military experience where I was like, it's worthwhile for some you or somebody like you to try to get into that space because I think you have something to say in that space and you're about something in that space. You're not just, hey, I want to open my shingle as a theater out here and try right. to do this. It's not, it, it's not um, that solipsistic. It, it's truly that I, I do think we as a country will really benefit from mostly great stories interesting stories, new stories, things we haven't heard before mm-hmm. when we develop and facilitate a veteran pipeline into the live performance space. I just think there's really cool things that can happen. And as much as we all hear about, you know, Coachella and some of the great mm-hmm. festivals that go on and you see Kim Kardashian out there, or Paris Hilton out there, I'm probably dating myself. There's probably new and cooler <laughs> people now that are doing that. But Folks, folks like that and, and cultural institutions like that, it's like, how badass would it be if there were some of those that were veteran-based, but not just for veterans, but they're veteran-fueled? Yes. And that people are going, man, you know, if I applied myself and went into the military, I'd probably find, scratch that young male itch of finding out who I am, having some noble fights, and then look at the stories you get. Look at the, if I am creative, look at what that creative impulse is going to, what that's going to bring out of me. There's probably going to be a lot of cool stuff. And I, that to me is a cultural emphasis worth underscoring and highlighting. And um, yeah, so long answer, short question. Yeah, that, that is uh, very much part of why I started doing VetRep. So we're sitting at VetRep's headquarters here in the parlor in Cornwall, New York. So can you explain a little bit more to our audience, what vet rep is all about, and yeah. then how they can get involved or find out more about it. Yeah, so uh, essentially, vet rep, we are the home for veterans in the live performance arts. That encompasses really three verticals, let's call them our lines of effort. One is theater, and by that, we really cater to veteran playwrights. Mm-hmm. We'll use professional actors, I don't care mm-hmm. if they're veterans or not, but as far as the writing and the content creation, If we distinguish between the creative art and the interpretive art, the creative arts are coming from veterans. The interpretive art, the actors, directors, and all that can be veterans or not. That's not as important to us. But as long as the content creation is coming from veterans, that's our theater piece. 
Our second vertical is for veterans in every other artistic media that can be performed live. Okay. So that can be visual art, that can be music, dance, poetry, spoken word, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and to those, we have our Savage Wonderground events that you obviously are intimately aware of. I'm going to pretend <laughs> you don't know about, so I can tell more about it. But where we take, where it's a multimedia show that's narrative based, it's an immersive show in usually very idiosyncratic, funky, crazy spaces. Mm-hmm where we do unpredictable storytelling, but through a variety of different mediums. So the one we have coming up in D.C. on April 13th at the Principal Gallery is musician, mm-hmm. former Navy veteran, another Navy veteran that's a storyteller, the Marine Corps artist in residence that will be doing live art, wow. and a Marine poet. So between the four of them, it's going to be a, they're going to construct a narrative, and the show's actually going to work its way through the Principal Gallery where we're doing the show. So we're going to move it from room to room and you're kind of going with the show. It's very short. It's like an hour, but it gives people a a taste, not just of what veterans can do in the artistic space, but also just a really good show. You know, come for the veterans, stay for the art. Like, I mean, you know, it's not, you're not, we're not there to get people to salute the flag. This isn't, you know, we, we always talk here, Lilla, your wife and I always talk about the idea. We're not trying to do Brussels sprouts theater. We don't want people to come here because it's good for you because you should right. go support the veterans. Right. We want you to come here because you're going to see a great show that you're not going to see anywhere else. And then the fact that it's done by veterans should be intriguing to you. Um, but that's academic. You know, the bottom line is we want to put out a great product. Long answer, short question. That's our second line of effort. And obviously that encompasses the festival, the Savage Wonder Festival that we're going to do now in 24. The third line of effort is our classes and our development programs. So the classes, acting classes, playwriting for veterans, so we can get more veterans into the creative pipeline. And then um, the development is really a couple things. Artist development, especially trying to find actors and directors we want to work with that are going to bring our work to Mm -hmm. life. And audience development. Where's the audience going to be? As you know, we own one Angola here in, in right. Cornwall. That's going to be our home eventually where we have a regional theater and where we're able to do a lot of stuff. But we want to grow the audience. There is no other professional theater around us here. So we want to grow the audience, make people used to coming in and getting mm-hmm. a dopamine rush by going to see live shows. <laughs> so it's doing shows here at the parlor for right now and then eventually over at one Angola is part of our development process of just growing an audience base. Again, those are our three basic lines of effort that we're trying to do at VetRep. And um, yeah, we're just getting going. We're only in year two. We're only about to start <laughs> off year two. Um, and then and obviously, VetRep.org is our website, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. And um, that has links to everything. Uh, for our veterans in all artistic media, we also have our Savage Wonder website, SavageWonder.com. So if you go to SavageWonder.com, you can buy tickets to our events, our immersive art events, these shows like the one in D.C. on April 13th. Um, so SavageWonder.com and VetRep.org are two sites. So do you have any particular big upcoming events you want to promote? Yeah, I mean, the one on April 13th is going to be epic. That is, it's our return to the principal gallery. It's right in Old Town, Alexandria. It's a beautiful, world-class art gallery. But it's also a really cool space. You exposed brick kind of these two kind of ballroomish looking rooms and then kind of tiny funky little cul-de-sacs inside <laughs> it. So it's a great space for us to do these very intimate shows where you're sure. really right there seeing the performers do stuff and, and bring things to life. So April 13th at the principal gallery in DC, that's going to be a really fun one. If you're in the greater Cornwall, New York area, by all means, we're here at, at uh, the parlor on 16 Quaker every Saturday night, pretty much from now until mid December, we're going to have shows going up with professional New York City cast actors, 
A lot of great guest directors that we're going to have. By all means, those are pay what you can tickets. So by all means, come out to that. And then um, we do have a show coming up at Penguin Rep in Rockland, and I really wish I could talk about that. <laughs> I'm, I don't. There's no reason this could possibly get jinxed. Yet I'm still not wanting to jinx it. But we have a really big star attached, whose name you would know and people would know. You do know who it is, but that aside, <laughs> that's because you're on the board. But the point being, um, it's 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 going to be awesome. Uh, that'll be coming up, and if you're following us on Instagram or going to our website, you will see that announcement uh, when we have that and when we're able to talk openly about it. Very nice. Yeah. Well, Chris, we covered a lot of ground yeah. today, so I think I'll just turn the mic over to you for any last comments, words of wisdom you have for the audience. No, you made me cry, Leslie. <laughs> Just so embarrassing. I can't even do that to myself on my own show. No, listen, dude. This was great. This is fun, Charlie. It's always great when we talk. But I feel like, yeah, we, we struck mineral soil on this one. This yeah, was it good. was really great. Great job. Yeah. Well, yeah, you brought it. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Chris. That's my pleasure, brother. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. Many thanks to today's guest, Chris Meyer, our editor, Michael Neal, and our sponsors, The Epoch Times and The Havoc Journal. And most importantly, a profound thank you to you, our listeners. Until next time, God bless and good hunting on your own battlefields.